While you're taking your seats, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. I kind of felt the need when I came up earlier to reintroduce myself. I've been gone for three Sundays on the preaching circuit and then away with a group from here up north. So my name is John. I'm a pastor here at Quinnessa Baptist Church. Um, And it is good to see all of you. And it is a joy to worship here. We continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. We've completed chapter 6, and today we will embark on the beginning of chapter 7. Have you ever felt burned by a church before? Have you ever experienced being hurt by other believers? Have you felt the sting of being judged by others because you might look a little different? You might dress a little different. You might have visible tattoos. You don't seem to fit the mold of what a Christian is supposed to look like. If you've ever felt that way, I want to encourage you this morning not to allow a bad experience to cause you to throw away the whole thing. The reality is, is that there are unhealthy churches all across the land. Some of the worst hurts that we can experience come at the hands of fellow believers. Sheep bites hurt the worst. And the reality is, the further a church drifts away from the gospel, there are two ditches on either side of the road. If the gospel is the narrow path, there are two ditches that you'll find yourself in. On one ditch, it is what we would call legalism. In the other ditch, the word is antinomianism. Really what that means, anti-nomos, no law, against the law. So you have lawlessness and you have an overemphasis on the law. And it is the danger of every, and it is, the, uh, it is incumbent upon every church to know where those ditches are and to know how to stay in the center. What is true of churches is true of Christians. If we do not stay gospel-centered, we will find ourselves drifting to either one ditch or the other. In Mark 7, verses 1 through really 13 here, Jesus addresses both of these issues among the religious people of his day. So follow along with me as we will read the word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. 
As it is written, the people honors, the peop, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This ends the reading of the word of God. What we see here in Mark 7 is a transition. Jesus is wrapping up his ministry in Galilee. He is going to venture north, and he is going to be in, enter into a Gentile uh, area where he will start his ministry up there for a short period of time. And it's almost as though, understand Mark 7, Jesus is like going out with a bang here. As he's gone through, and we've seen the reality of his ministry so all the way uh, through in chapter 6 in various aspects, the apostolic ministry, them being sent out. Now Jesus is going, and he's a, he is going after the religious establishment of his day, and he is calling them out to their faces. This is very important to understand. And I want us to notice here the issue that we see in verses 1 and 2 under a heading that I supplied, legalism imposed. We are brought to face-to-face with these two, these two kinds of people. We read that the Pharisees had gathered with them and some of the scribes. I believe at this point through Mark's gospel, we might be familiar with these groups if we've grown up in the church. We know who these people are, but let's just make it clear so we all will understand who are these Pharisees and scribes. It says they had come up from Jerusalem. Well, this isn't the first time they've had uh, one-on-one with Jesus. If you, would, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 22, they also had come up from Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're saying that Jesus' ministry is because he's possessed by the devil. They're not very bright people. And so now this is another encounter that Jesus has with them. Well, that whole context was in the unpardonable sin. It was their unbelief directed towards Jesus. So who are the Pharisees? Well, in Judaism, these are the strict conservatives of Judaism. They came into being around the middle of the second century B.C. during the Maccabean Revolt, about 165 B.C. This social political group, uh, religious, a tall one really, in, in the first century, they kind of come together. These are the literal interpreters of the Scripture. They take the Bible literally. They take the law literally in their interpretation. You also have the scribes. The scribes, this is a group that was organized by Ezra right after the exile. They come out of Babylonian exile sometime in the middle of the 6th century B.C. Ezra's a good guy. The scribes, they started out really good. They were educated. They were the literate bunch. They were interpreters also of the law. They were the copyists of, of the Mosaic law. Many of the scribes also belong to the party of the Pharisees. So not all scribes are Pharisees, not all Pharisees are scribes, but scribes do, many of them were Pharisees. And so these are your strict conservatives of Judaism. 
And what's the issue that we see taking place here that they will raise as this text goes on? You see, again, look in verse 2. They saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled. Mark wants to help this audience understand what that means. He says, unwashed hands. He provides some commentary in his own writing here. So the issue that we see going on right now in this passage is that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Well, as this text progresses, we will see what the problem is with that. Notice here in verses 3 and 4, we see it's almost a parenthetical citation here, or a parenthetical insert, that statement that Mark makes. This is done so it it will be helpful to not just us, but originally his audience. Remember, he's writing to a largely Gentile group in Rome. They're not familiar with the the, the nuances of all Jewish practice. So he needs to give some explanation here of what's actually taking place. So he tells us in verses 3 and 4, he says that the Pharisees and all of the Jews, kind of hyperbolically saying, like, this is something a lot of these people do. They do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Well, you hear this? You say, what's the big deal? Yeah, it's probably clean to wash your hands before you eat, right? We try to train our little ones to do that. This doesn't seem like a big deal. They Literally, this says, with a fist. You might see a footnote there on verse 3. If you have the ESV, it says that they wash their hands properly. This is just a hard translation, hard nuance here to translate. It literally means with a fist. So what's being conveyed here in this passage is not that they're trying to, that they're worried that their hands are dirty for hygiene's sake. They're, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes are upset that they're not doing it properly, that they're not doing it ceremonially. This is much more about ritual than it is about cleanliness. So there's a certain way that they want them to wash their hands. A certain proper procedure that they needed to walk down in order to perform this practice. It's not a hygiene issue that we see here. So we must ask the question here, okay, where does this practice come from? They're getting, they get upset over this. We would have to go back into the law. and We'd want to start looking through the law of Moses. Where did they get this practice from? And if you started right now in Genesis and you read through all of Moses, you would conclude by the end of Deuteronomy, it's nowhere. The only time that washing is even remotely referenced in the law of Moses is in Exodus. And it's dealing with the priests when they're going to offer sacrifice. You would find that in Exodus chapter 30, verses 18 through 21. But nowhere else in all of the law do we see that there is this practice of with a fist having to wash yourself, clean to the elbow, to the arm. What do they mean by that? No, this is what Mark wants us to understand here. Notice in, look at verse 3. After he says, wash their hands properly. No, it's not found in the law. This is holding to the tradition of the elders. What does this mean? This means that this practice that the scribes and the Pharisees wanted the disciples to do, and by implication, Jesus wasn't found in the scriptures, but was found in the oral tradition. The oral law that they had. They kind of had these two spheres of authority in the first century Judaism. They had the written word of Moses, and they had the oral tradition. That would be other things. So who are these elders? What is this 
Tradition of the elders. Well, these are just the distinguished Jews. These are the highly esteemed men of the city or the town or the village. The seasoned scribes and Pharisees, rulers of the synagogue. If you would go back, Jairus, whose daughter died, he was a ruler of the synagogue. He was one of the elders. So what we need to understand here, first and foremost, with this issue that has arised, is that it is not one of biblical practice, but of tradition. This is very important to getting to the point that Jesus makes here. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong or sinful about cleansing before a meal. I mean, cleanliness is next to godliness, is it not? That's not the problem that we see in this passage. But Mark also wants to let us know the extent to which this tradition was practiced. It's not just a matter of washing one's hands, no, The scribes and the Pharisees took this a lot further than just the washing of your hand with a fist. No, look at verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, well, if they had come into contact with a Gentile, they might be unclean. So lest they had touched something unclean while they were out in the marketplace, they would literally come back and wash themselves. They do not eat unless they wash. Literally, the translation here is they do not eat unless they baptize themselves. Then it's not just enough to baptize themselves. No, it's their cups and their pots and their vessels and quite possibly even the dining couches. This is the extent by which they would do this practice in the cleansing of all of their stuff. This is ceremonial here. And here's the problem that we're about to see. They had created a system and expectations that they believed were right, religious, and reverent. And as a result of their assumptions that they have created that had been going on for a long time in their tradition, they ask the question of verse 5. The question is asked, and this is where the problem takes place. They ask, in verse 5, a contemptuous question. You must interpret the tone of this text and this question in light of the response that Jesus gives. So when you understand, is this an honest question? Well, it's certainly not with the way you see Jesus respond to them. So we interpret the tone of this question in light of the response that the perfect Son of God gives them. This was not an honest question seeking understanding, but rather one of contempt, judgment, and arrogance. Follow along with me in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This is a loaded question. There are so many things that they are not saying and they are saying by asking this question. Jesus, why do you disregard tradition? Because if your disciples are doing it, they're your disciples, therefore you're their teacher. So really the problem's not them, it's you. Why, what makes you think, Jesus, that you don't have to fall in line with the tradition of the elders? Your people have dirty hands. Your people are thus defiled. 
And you seem to be okay with that, Jesus. It is, though, it is as though they are calling Jesus a progressive and a liberal in this sense. And that you are teaching others to be as well. Those are the happy words of the legalist. They're saying, Jesus, we have rules and traditions. And it's like you are trying to lead these people into a new religion or something. You better not disrupt the status quo of what we've got going on here. Why do they not walk according to the traditions of the elders? When the question is asked, now legalism is imposed. There's nothing wrong with preferences. There are nothing, there's nothing wrong with matters of conviction, matters of conscience. We all have those. The problem is, is when your preferences, your convictions, and your matters of conscience are imposed upon somebody else. That's the problem in this passage. And that's why Jesus strikes hard and fast and to the point. This is what they're doing. You don't do it our way. And if you don't do it our way, you are wrong. This is legalism imposed. And what do we see as a response from Jesus is a scathing reply. Verses 6 through 8 here. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, you think about the Pharisees. They asked the question. They did not expect this response. No, this is not what they expected. But Jesus tells them, Isaiah spoke of you, and it was not kind. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus unleashes on them for their perversion of true religion. First century Judaism, according to the Pharisees' tradition, had become an apostate religion. It wasn't even according to the law of Moses. They had piled up so many different things. This wasn't pure religion. It wasn't what God had given. No, it was... It was a mess on both sides because verses 1 through 8, Jesus deals with the legalism, and then verses 9 through 13, he deals with the antinomianism. They're saying that you have to do all these other things, and they're saying, but you don't have to do the things that actually are said. We'll deal with that next time. But for now, again, we're focusing on the legalism that Jesus deals with. And he says to them in verse 6, you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you're a religious person committed to your system of religion, this would make you angry. This would make you very angry, like to the point where you'd want to kill that person that said that to you. He calls them hypocrites. What does he mean by that? You play the part, you wear the mask. Your lives are not consistent with your profession. That's what he's saying them, saying to them. This word comes from the Greek drama where, where those that would play different parts in the Greek drama would wear the mask to cover their face so that you would see the hypocrite there. Saying, you are not what you profess to be. You are but a shell. Elsewhere, Jesus addresses how cleanly they dress up the outside, but inwardly they are whitewashed tombs. They are full of dead men's bones. So notice here how Jesus applies Isaiah prophesying about these people in this day. He first says, they honor, they honor me with their lips. This is external. This is external. They're paying lip service 
to the truth of God's Word. They talk a good game. Lofty speculation about God. They say all the right things. Their Old Testament jargon is great. If we were to make it in a, in a contemporary setting, you speak Christianese well. That's external. Anybody can learn the language. We teach children vocabulary. Anybody can learn the language. But he says, but their heart is far from me. He's getting to the heart of the matter. That's internal. True religion is a matter of the heart. It's not what we do. We are transformed from the inside out. Commenting on this, one commentator says, external observance is no substitute for inward piety. He's right on with that. Furthermore, he says, in vain do they worship me. Again, external conformity. So Jesus is going, here's a pattern. He's going, he's going external, internal, external, and once again, he's saying you do all the ritualistic stuff. You do it all. You sing, you pray, you listen to the word. And it's all for naught. Because inwardly, your hearts are cold as ice. This is what he's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees. Worship is not about showing up and offering a sacrifice or blowing a horn and letting everybody see how pietistic you are. No, that's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's not about what others see in you. And he'll address that again at the what defiles a person in verses 14 through 23. And this is why. This is why this vainness and worship and paying lip service to God is performed by these people because they are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's kind of a, the hinge verse of this passage, linking, verse, linking 1 through 7 to 9 through 13. Imagine saying this. Imagine sitting there. Imagine being one of the disciples with dirty hands. You kind of just want to like fall back into like the shrubbery. You want to just not be seen. Like, wow, this is, a, I would feel very awkward in this moment when this, this fiery confrontation is taking place. Ah, this makes me uncomfortable. In fact, working through this text this week and last week made me very uncomfortable in my own right as soul-searching in my heart and bringing the text and the truth of God's word to bear upon God's people. Jesus never apologized. I want you to observe here, Jesus is not being nice, but he is being kind and he is being good. And here's the point. Jesus is going to war against legalism. So we've used the word a bunch of times. What do we mean specifically by way of legalism? Legalism can be defined as a strict, excessive conformity to a religious code. It is the assumption that adherence and obedience gain divine favor. Let me repeat that. It is the assumption that adherence and obedience gain divine favor. Anytime this subject is brought up, there are probably three possible responses. People get uncomfortable. People get upset and others get excited. And I envision and assume all three will occur even here. So the argument here in Mark against the Pharisees and scribes is this, of the passage. 
Jesus is telling them, in summary, you bind the consciences of people to do what the scriptures do not command. You have added your own traditions and matters of conscience and made them as binding as scripture. You have elevated the oral tradition and you've placed it on par with the scriptures. You might not say that. You might say, no, the word of God, the scriptures are higher. Yes, but in your practice, you've laid, you have made them equals. And what Jesus is doing here is he, is he is holding up and upholding the supremacy of the word of God, the supremacy of the scriptures. He's saying tradition must fall under the authority of the scriptures. In other words, you have created a religion that uses the Bible. For them, it's the Old Testament. Abuses the Bible and goes beyond the Bible. And he looks them square in the face and says, you are hypocrites, you are legalists, you are traditionalists, and you have exalted your religion over God's revelation. I once again will say this is the fast track to getting killed. Commenting on this, William Hendrickson says, quote, they were guilty of placing mere human tradition above divine revelation, a man-made rule above a God-given command. The rabbis had divided the Mosaic law into 613 separate decrees, 365 prohibitions, 248 positive directives. Then, in connection with each decree, by drawing arbitrary distinctions between what they had considered permitted and not permitted, they attempted to regulate every detail of the conduct of the Jews. That sounded exhausting reading that. Imagine living that. Again, in Luke chapter 11, verse 46, Jesus would look at some of the lawyers and he would say, Woe to you, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so as we think about this subject here of legalism, it is first imposed by the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus exposes it as what it is, false religion coming from a heart that is far from God. I think it's important to note we should realize that this is not simply a first century problem that happened in the context of apostate Judaism. No, we need to go backwards long before the first century to where we see where this problem originated. And it is true, all the answers are in Genesis. Mankind has been perverting and inventing religious systems since the Garden of Eden. You can find that in Genesis chapter 3, especially Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. When Adam and Eve go and hide and then they clothe themselves, they're taking matters onto their own hands, they're trying to be their own saviors, try to do better, self-covering, self-preservation. No, that would never do. They ran from the one in which they should have ran to. Adam and Eve, they do it themselves. Fast forward, Egyptian polytheism. In fact, just Abraham. Abraham's a moon worshiper in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Invented his own religion before submitting to God's call. You have the prophets of Baal. Don't you realize that they were in the northern kingdom of Israel? Israel with the golden calf, whoring after other gods. Now the Pharisees. This perversion of true religion, this demise of true religion has been going on since the beginning of time. Fast forward to the 16th century. You see it again. The church was a mess. What happened? 
tradition, and scripture were placed on the same level. Again, seven sacraments, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs that set Luther on fire. Nothing less than a reformation of epic proportions would suffice the problems of a perverted religion. And so the Protestant Reformation comes back because the Protestant Reformation is not a new religion. It is going back. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not inventing something new. Going back to the supremacy of the Word of God. Sola Scriptura is not an invention of the 16th century. No, it is Scripture alone. Scripture is our sole guide for faith and practice in all matters. So what happens? Let's fast forward again to the 20th century. Early 20th century. In response to liberalism that was coming out of Germany in the, in the mid-1800s, we see the rise of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism comes up in the early 20th century, starts out as a very pure movement that sought to unify confessional, convictional, conservative evangelicals against the rising wave of Protestant liberalism. Protestant liberalism denies the miracles, denies the virgin birth. There's no hell in Protestant liberalism. All that stuff, that's mean God. God of Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. It's, it's a perverted religion. Protestant liberalism is not Christianity at all. They use the same vocabulary. It is a different dictionary. Nonetheless, as a concerted effort against the rise of liberalism, Protestant liberalism, in an effort to uphold the inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. From the dead, this group of of like-minded believers came together to form a coalition from Presbyterians to Congregationalists, and yes, even from our own stream of Baptists, came together. They agreed on the fundamentals Yes, they had differences on other matters, but the, the, the pressing issue of the day united them on what was most important. These are the fundamentals of the faith, and we hold to those. This happens in the second decade of the 19th, 20th century. Machen and Protestant liberalism, he writes the book against them. Back when Princeton was decent, before Westminster had to replace that. But what happens What was good in the 1920s and the 1930s began to morph in the second part of the 20th century. Fundamentalism, especially the independent Baptist fundamental circle, became increasingly countercultural. A culture of isolation began to creep in. It was Jesus against culture. And so a separatist mindset begins. We must pull ourselves away. But not separation wasn't enough. Then it became second and third degrees of separation, meaning that if you associated with someone who associated with somebody over there, we need to not associate with you. This is why they, this is why they all rejected Billy Graham. And wherever you fall with him, he, he had an impact on evangelicalism. Nonetheless, second and third degrees of separation began to take place If you associated with those kinds of sinners or people of a different denomination, you were looked at as a bad person. You were in danger of being shunned. Well, this movement continues on. Traditionalism begins to set in, and so does legalism at this point. 
Why? Because there's an absolutely refusal to change. There is a refusal to see things any differently. Any change was viewed as contempt. Statements like, that's the way it's always been done around here, became the mantra. And the system became Bible and tradition. Many of you were in churches like this. It's all about the do's and the don'ts. You better be there every time the doors are open. You cannot go to the movies. Children are to be seen and not heard. Strict dress code for men and women. The pastor sits on a pedestal. He can do no wrong. He controls the entire organization. Early fundamentalist circles said you throw out your television. It was evil. You need to remove it from your house. Now this movement had the gospel, but it was piled under this whole list of rules, buried under the weight of legalism. It was do's and don'ts, but not discipleship. Listen, when do's and don'ts replace doctrine and discipleship, you will witness the demise of true religion. But even up until this point here, we have talked about the problem of legalism mostly outside of us. We must recognize, too, we have been affected by this. The problem's not always just out there. This text here calls for self-reflection individually and corporately. The question we should ask even here of ourselves is, what do I contribute to true religion? Am I contributing to the demise of true religion that comes at the hands of legalism? Am I contributing to the rise of true religion. I think another way we could think about legalism here from this text, as I stated earlier, is when we take the matter of conscience and impose that upon another person. We would say, no, we don't. We, we, we profess salvation by grace through faith. That's it. How does that work out in your practice? And the danger is we can do this subtly and we can do this outright. You can even be a legalist unto yourself and bind your own conscience in ways that the Scripture does not. Must be careful. Some questions to think about. Jesus, why do your disciples wear jeans on a Sunday and not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus, I saw some of your disciples at the movie theater. Why don't they walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why do some of your disciples have tattoos and not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why do some of your disciples express themselves a certain way in worship and not follow the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why do your disciples associate with those kinds of people and not follow the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why don't your disciples come back on Sunday night like we do? Brothers and sisters, we must understand there is one Lord of the conscience. And it's not me and it's not you. Matters of conscience are those that are not explicit prohibitions or actions in the Scriptures. However, you might feel as though you should or should not do something. That is fine. That is totally fine. You have every right to feel that way, and it, and it, is no, it is not a wrong thing to do. 
Time would not permit us even this morning, but Paul addresses the matter of conscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23-33. through 33. And he says this, he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? This is important to understand. Here's the problem. The problem is when we do what the Pharisees did. The problem is that, and when it becomes sin, is when we elevate a matter of conscience, which might just be a preference of ours, and we impose that standard upon another person who does not share the same conviction or preference, such as washing your hands. So, let's ask the question, how do we prevent this in our lives? How do we stay on the narrow course and not swerve into one ditch or the other? Let me give you a list. My list that I need. First, have a category for matters of conscience and know what they are. If everything is black and white to you and there are no matters of conscience, you need to evaluate that. So first, have a category for matters of conscience and know what they are. Know what they are for you and know what they are for others. Second, learn from those who do not share the same convictions on matters of conscience. Don't judge them. Ask them a question. And not the way the Pharisees ask the question. Ask the question seeking understanding. Third, never stop learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only people that stop learning are dead and know-it-alls. And you don't want to be either one of those. Four, remember this. The saying, semper reformanda. Always reforming. We need to constantly be going back to the Word of God, bringing everything that we think, say, and do in our practices underneath the Word of God under the authority of God's word. Fifth, spend more time focused on your personal walk and less time focused on what others may be doing around you. Yes, you are your brother's keeper, but if we're looking at what's wrong with everyone else around us, remember, my mom always told me this, when you point the finger, there's three more pointing back at you. Sixth, it goes without saying, stay humble. Stay humble. Humble legalists don't exist. Remember the cesspool of sin that Jesus dove in, that was yours, that you created, to reach to your depths, to pull you out of that. Be mindful of where you have come from, whether it was from a life of morality, which is just as disgusting as a life in the gutter. Any life apart from Christ is a cesspool of iniquity. Remember from which you have been rescued. Stay humble. Seventh, be patient. All of God's lambs in here, we are on a path of progressive sanctification. Be patient with your brother or sister who's growing and learning. It is not the stronger brother that has many convictions. It's the weaker one. And so that patience is to be, be, be patient with the one with many convictions as well. And so that you would not violate their conscience as well. Eighth, remain focused on Jesus. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let me just pause there. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You are not the founder or perfecter of your faith, let alone someone else's. That is Jesus who does this thing. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our gaze is to be upon Christ. The closer we are to Christ, the further we stay away from the ditches on either side. And remember this. We have never impressed God. We have never impressed God. God is not more pleased with your tie than your t-shirt. Remember, man looks upon the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. There is one garment of attire that is pleasing to God, and it's called a robe of righteousness that we have received by faith the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And when we are covered in the robes of Jesus' righteousness, God looks upon us sinful, whether antinomian or, or, or legalistic at times, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because we have received by faith all the merits of Jesus Christ. Christian, remember, God is pleased in you because he is pleased in his son. So our only claim, as we will bring this message even to a close, is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's all I have. That's all I need. It's not our attire, our attendance, or our service. God has given us a law to obey and we follow it in glad obedience because of the transforming work of the Spirit within us. We've been enabled to. We delight in the law of God because it's a response to salvation and redemption accomplished in Jesus Christ applied to our lives. So I don't do this to live. I don't do this for any other reason than to look and see this grace that has been poured out for me. It is out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness that we live lives of obedience. The love of God for you does not ride a roller coaster. God never stopped loving Israel. And look how messed up they were. God says, I love you because I love you. I love you because I have set my love upon you from eternity past. And knowing all your faults and all your failures because God sees the end from the beginning and he knows how you're going to finish and he loves you today. So as a result of that, we worship, we give thanks, we obey so that we are free to live and to love him and his church for the glory of his name. And at the end of the day, and we'll close with this, we say all we have is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a law to obey. You have enabled us to do so. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what you've commanded of us, that we would be careful not to go beyond your word. Lord, but would we also be careful to know your word, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you as you've commanded us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.